You are listening to Over and Back's Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s. Today's mystery is, why weren't the bullets exciting enough for NBA fans? Hello, and welcome to the Over and Back Classic NBA podcast. We are continuing our Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s series with a look at the mid to late 70s Washington Bullets. And with me today is Chris Elzey. He is a co-editor of DC Sports, the nation's capital at play. Wrote a great chapter in that book about the Washington Bullets of this time. And uh, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks. The Bullets are kind of um, a little bit of an enigma, I guess, um, just because they... Um, you know, they're, they're right at this time where, um, you know, the, the, the league isn't covered as, you know, it, it was kind of mm-hmm. hard to find stuff on the bullets as opposed to most of the other teams, you know, that were, yeah, obviously there's plenty on the Knicks and there's plenty on the Lakers and there's plenty on a lot of the powerful teams, but the bullets kind of get overlooked in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, they really weren't sexy, right? I mean, they were sort of a lunch pail team. Um, you know, they really didn't have great superstars. You know, you could argue Elvin Hayes. Wes Unseld, but even they, you know, they didn't have any real flash to their game. Um, So I think part of that, too. And right, you know, the bullets are coming at a period in the 1970s when uh, basketball, this is, you know, a couple years before uh, um, Magic and Bird enter the league. And, uh, you know, the league is getting ready to take off. But, you know, these games are, if the finals in the 77, 78 season, 78, 79 season, and some outlets were tape delayed, right? You know, they were shown at 1130 at night. I can remember watching them as a kid uh, waiting up until 1130, you know, for those games, both series with the Sonics and the Bullets. So uh, you've come a long way. Maybe the Bullets don't necessarily have dynamic players, but they do have two of the top 50 players of all time in Wes Unseld and Elvin Hayes. You know, what What do you think it was where the Bullets just, for, for whatever reason, haven't, um, the legend of the Bullets hasn't spread after the time in which they were successful? Well, first off, uh, we have to remember that this franchise, you know, the Baltimore uh, Bullets and then moving to the, uh, of course, they were the Capitol Bullets in 73, 74, and then they became the Washington Bullets after that, was one of the, the most successful franchises of the decade. If we look at it on paper, you know, they had, they were up in the top of playoff appearances. Uh, they were up in the upper echelons, right, of uh, number of wins. Um, and I think also in final series appearances, you know, they lost in 71 as the Bullets to uh, the Bucks. They were swept. Same thing happened in the uh, 75 final series. They were swept by Golden State. So I think some of this lack of popularity or remembering the franchise, the team, is owing to the fact that even though they had some success, they, you know, they had some forgettable <laughs> uh, final appearances in the early part of the 1970s. And then to your point earlier, uh, even though they had two of the top 50 players, all-time greats in NBA, these players, uh, Wes Unseld particularly, was a kind of working-class player, right? He was a lunch pail player. He, his responsibility was to play good defense, to get the rebounds, outlet pass. In fact, that's one of the things Wes Unseld is probably best known for, remembered for, are his bullet-like outlet passes that he could throw from one end of the court to the other. Um, but, you know, they, they really didn't have the kind of, of flash, right, uh, this kind of uh, standout player, whether it was style on the court 
or style off of the court, you know, the kind of Clyde Frazier type player who was uh, attracting attention for his sartorial um, uh, outlandishness, if you want to use that word. Um, so part of it, I think, is their, their lack of success when they got to the finals, but also really not having uh, players that would attract a lot of attention nationwide. You know, there really wasn't a kind of, of story uh, that, that the press could, could uh, glob onto. Yeah, and um, as you mentioned, Unseld, not a particularly uh, flashy player other than, of course, the, the outlet passing. Um, and um, you know, Hayes was a little bit more dynamic, but was not... Um, he, he had sort of a reputation as being somewhat of a malcontent and um, not necessarily getting along well with the press. And that probably played into the reputation that he had and, and, and thus maybe limited his popularity um, at the time. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I, I think that's probably right. You know, in fact, there were rumors uh, in 76, 77 uh, that uh, Hayes was going to be traded. Uh, and, and Hayes sort of had this, this, um, you know, he started the seasons off slowly, you know, which, of course, fueled uh, the trade rumors even more. But then, of course, he, he got going during the middle of the season, and he was always sort of there in, in the latter part of the season and during the playoffs. Um, Kevin Grevy, uh, who played on the Bullets, told me, uh, I interviewed him for this article, he told me that Elvin was a remarkable player. Uh, he would show up to training camp, um, and Kevin would say, what have you been doing, E? You know, what have you been doing over in the offseason? You know, Kevin, meanwhile, was busting his gut, you know, working out, lifting weights, playing all the time. And, and uh, Hayes would tell him, I've just been down on my farm in, in Texas, uh, cutting wood and doing this stuff. I, you know, I don't really think Elvin uh, worked necessarily at his game. He, he had a, a natural talent. He was a hard worker. Um, and, you know, his turnaround jump shot was, was, was money, you know, it was incredible. Uh, and, and he could fill the lane and he just had a lot of natural athleticism. And, you know, he, he was a kind of player that, um, you know, when things started to roll for him, uh, he was, he was unstoppable, but there was always this sense that he thought he was, you know, I don't want to say better than others, but, you know, I don't think he really got on too well with his teammates. He uh, titled his autobiography um, in the late 70s, They Call Me the Big E. You know, I think that uh, gives yeah. you a sense of, of, of this. But, um, uh, you know, they, they, they had other good players, uh, nothing really outstanding, but uh, good role players. And, you know, we'll talk about this, but that 77-78 uh, team really started to click and gel, and they got over their injuries just at the right time. And Hayes was, you know, a 12-time All-Star, six-time All-NBA player. I mean, he was an excellent, um, as we mentioned, top 50. So he really did have a lot. You know, he's, he's the guy, if you're looking at numbers and you're looking back at, you know, what really, um, it's production-wise, he was the guy who was carrying the load. Now, you know, Unsell did so many things that weren't necessarily showing up in the box score. You know, he was obviously... Um, you know the, uh, the the straw that stirred the drink, so to speak. But um, yeah, and, and they they made a great combination once um, Hayes joined the team in '72, being traded for uh, Jack Marin, who had been you know one of the key forces for that you know '69, '70, '71 period, and when the Bullets you know first came to prominence, Unseld wins Rookie of the Year and MVP in the same year. Uh, Earl of the Pearl Monroe, Kevin Lockery, Gus Johnson, you know they're kind of a surprise Eastern Conference powerhouse in '69. 
then reach the finals, as you mentioned, in 71. But then that team is broken up pretty quickly. Earl Monroe has a contract dispute with uh, A. Poland. The Bullets owner ends up going to the Knicks, and they kind of have to rebuild a little bit after that as you know some of the other players are aging. But they, you know, this key trade, uh, sending in Elvin Hayes, um, and then a couple years later for the 74 season, the Bullets moving to D.C., Landover, Maryland, actually, uh, to become the uh, Capitol Bullets and then a season later become the uh, Washington Bullets. Uh, other than Huns- uh, Unseld and um, and Hayes, the other really key player who, who comes on the team during that time, uh, Phil Chenier, one of the first uh, hardship cases in the NBA, really a standout uh, shooting guard before injuries cut him down. He was a three-time All-Star um one-time All-NBA second-team player. Um, a little bit forgotten about. Of course, he's important in team history uh, for his play and also because he has been a long-time announcer for the uh, television announcer for the team. So he's still, you know, he, his name is out there. But as far as how good of a player he was, maybe um, forgotten a little bit because he didn't have the uh, longevity because of the injury. Yeah, no, that's right. Phil Chenier was an outstanding player, a good threat from the outside, played good defense, solid, didn't turn the ball over much. And as you mentioned, he was really one of the first, you know, class of the hardship draft players. Um, so that was certainly a welcomed addition. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk about, if you want, Bobby Dandridge, who they acquired um, later on. And he was probably the, the final piece to this team. You know, they, they acquired him. Bob Ferry, it was said, acquired him as sort of counterbalance Dr. J., Julius Irving, who they'd have to face, right? He knew in the Eastern Conference Finals. And, and uh, Bob Ferry was right. You know, Bobby Dandridge played very well in the series, battled injuries, but he came back and sort of neutralized Julius Irving. And, uh, of course, then they made it to the finals against um, uh, the Seattle Supersonics. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And, um, and and Dandridge also, we'll, we'll get into it a little bit more later, but one, really one of the first key free agent uh, NBA signings. You know, one, one of the first, yes. uh, you know, important players to move via that. And the Bullets really the first team that won a championship, you know, because of free agency. Yes, no, exactly. You know, all these things in the 70s, right? You have the a- NBA-ABA merger, you have free agency going on. On, and the Bullets were really one of the first teams, as you mentioned, to take advantage of that. So, uh, going back to the '75 season, that's really the first—that's uh, their first finals. Well, their their first finals appearance under the you know the unselled um, Hey Chenier, you know the, the 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 team that sort of come out of the ashes of the uh, Baltimore uh, team. Um, you know, they're really well balanced team with a good bench. They go ten deep. Casey Jones is their coach, the great Celtics star, who would later become, of course, the famous Celtics coach. But you know, with the uh, Bullets, he, they did reach the uh, finals. Uh, he's cre- considered pretty easygoing, but credited for forging the team together. Hayes and Chenier are kind of the prime scoring threats. Unseld has sort of come off a, a a season where he battled injuries and uh, had career lows in most of categories, only five point nine points per game. Not that he was ever huge score but um but it was 27 at that point but actually did bounce back and you know it, it went back to his um usual production after that but it looked like a uh a, a chance for him to perhaps you know be at a turning point in his career and fortunately for him and for the bullets he you know he, he bounced back and the the team and him had the success they had for the rest of the decade 
Yeah, uh, you know, that 75 final against the uh, Warriors was a huge disappointment, right? The Bullets that season had a 60-22 and 22 record. Uh, there was a lot of expectations for them that year, even though Unseld was battling some knee injuries. Hayes was playing well. Chenier was, was firing well on all cylinders, and um, they just didn't produce yeah. You know, in the final series, uh, you know, the Warriors with Rick Barry and Clifford Ray and, and um, uh, Gus Johnson, no, excuse me, Charles Johnson, who will join the Bullets later, uh, really had a series of their life. And, um, you know, the, the Bullets were, were embarrassed um, in that series. But I think it sort of provided some motivation for them. You know, even though Dick Mata and the team will look back and really not use that, or at least they won't use it publicly, admit it publicly, I think certainly with Hayes and Unseld and those players who had been around at the time, you know, that was a huge motivating factor for them not to allow that to occur again. And um, before that, through the playoffs, they uh, were able to beat the uh, Buffalo Braves in seven games with Bob McAdoo, who was the MVP of the league that year. Randy Smith also facing Jack Marin again, who, of course, had played for the Bullets. And um, some big scoring out uh, bursts in during the series. Uh, McAdoo had 50 points in game four. Uh, Hayes uh, answered with 46 points, including 18 straight in game five. And it, it was a tough series where the Bullets were able to... Uh, uh, win uh, Game Seven in a a pretty big blowout, but yet another team that the Buffalo Braves, who only really briefly tasted success, and of course you know never made the finals or anything like that, but this was kind of the uh, the peak of their success before they would go and you know become the Clippers in a few years. Yeah, yeah. Well, nobody's saying the decade of the 1970s was a league uh, a decade of uh, defense. You no, know? <laughs> not exactly. I mean. If, if you look back at the scores, but even if you watch old clips on YouTube or something, it's just, it's stark, you know, you can see the difference between the kind of ball pressure that is applied uh, and used in the game today as opposed to back then. But, you know, the game was still physical and we cannot discount the, the ability of players to score. You know, they still had to put the ball in the basket. They still had to shoot from that distance. And much of the decade was played before the three-point line came in. So, you know, uh, if you consider that, you know, the, the Maraviches and the Kevin Greavies a little bit later, you know, these great outside shooters, Westfall, uh, Charles Johnson, you know, for his brief stint, you know, who knows how many points they could have put up with the three-point line. Right, yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, that obviously changed the um, uh, the game, and the Bullets are kind of the last you know strong team to uh, you know one of the last strong teams to you know be in that pre um, three point era, and uh, they are able to dethrone the Boston Celtics, who were the seventy four champions um, in the Eastern Conference Finals, and. Um, uh, really, they limit Cowens and Havlicek, who uh, both shoot terribly in the first two games, and um, they're able to win the uh, pretty easily, especially Game 2, and uh, Boston did manage to uh, come back a little bit in Game 3, but um, in Game 4, the um, Unseld has 25 rebounds and are able to uh, have a big scoring run thanks to Hayes and Chenier and also um, uh, Jimmy Jones and uh, Nick Witherspoon. And um, really play a um, able to surge past the uh, a really game Celtics team who had also won sixty games that year. Those were really the two top teams in the league that season. The finals the against the um, Warriors. The Warriors were you know like a forty seven win team. So so um, the, so really in in terms of you know being the two best teams in the league, this was uh, the, the the finals in a sense. Yeah. No. I mean, people were surprised, right? Uh, 
that, well, of course, the Warriors making the, the finals, but uh, they probably figured the Bullets would, but the outcome, yes. how the Warriors were able to sweep them, yes. was, as I mentioned earlier, a shock to, to many. Yeah. Um, and eventually, right, uh, that, that, the, the ripple effect of that series will push uh, Casey Jones out, um, the, the, not the next season, but after that, when the Bullets uh, finish uh, 48 and 34. You know, it was a big letdown that 75 76 season. And, and that final, like, all, most of those games were actually fairly close in those finals. It was just the, you know, the, the Warriors were able to uh, push through every time. And in a lot of those games, the Bullets actually had big leads at halftime. And, you know, for whatever reason, they were. Um, uh, they they would blow those leads and then Rick Barry or somebody else would you know get a big shot or hit some free throws right at the end. It was just uh, uh, you know it, it was probably a closer series than it appeared, but it was um, but obviously you know the the Warriors were able to um, you know come through when it mattered in during that series. That's right, and uh, let's not forget too that the state of the art this new great arena, the Capitol Center, was opened in Landover, Maryland, and. Seating 18,000 or plus, and um, the bullets came up goose eggs, right? You know, yes. during that series at home. And, uh, you know, as a franchise owner, Abe Poland um, was not that happy <laughs> with, with, with the results. But, um, you know, the bullets really had a hard speaking of fans. The bullets had a hard time attracting fans. Um, particularly, particularly uh, during that championship season. It's not until the playoffs. I think it's not even until the Eastern Conference semifinals against the Spurs uh, that they actually have a sellout. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, it, it was very difficult. And this is also the era, right, when the NBA was uh, not what it is today. You know, I mean, it wasn't that popular in a sense, and uh, except in certain uh, cities. But here in D.C., and a lot of that, I think, is attributed to the lack of success professional basketball had in the city. Um, You know, franchises uh, would come, and then franchises would leave. They wouldn't have a lot of success. Uh, Going back all the way into the original American Basketball League with the uh, uh, Palace Laundrymen, what a great name that is, Um, you know, in in the uh, mid to late 1920s. But, you know... They had teams in the short-lived American Basketball League, right, uh, of the early 60s. That failed. They had a team Rick Barry played for in the late 60s. Uh, that team failed. Uh, and so, you know, when the franchise moved to the city, um, you know, Abe Poland was sort of taking a gamble here. You know, uh, he was, I think it, it's indicative of where and what the team was called in that move in 73-74. They didn't call them the Washington Bullets, right? They called them the Capital Bullets, trying to, to draw some fans, you know, from Baltimore perhaps. Um, but eventually, of course, the next year they were named, renamed the Washington Bullets. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you think it was, I mean, you, you, it, is it more of just a, you know, they, they were a winner, but not quite enough of a winner to really capture the imagination? Is it sort of the what we talked about where they don't have necessarily those star personalities or that exciting brand of basketball? The other thing is that they are a team without a, you know, a, a prominent white star. And that is, of course, you know, a, a big concern for NBA decision makers at the time where it is becoming a, um, 
a you know African American dominated league, and the there there is a fear um, that 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 without the the marketable who are the white stars who are considered more marketable that the league is in trouble. Of course, in the eighties, that would be proven to um, you know be unfounded. Yeah, well, I think perhaps I think sometimes that's given a little too much credence. Look, you know, the owners, the people who had these franchises, they wanted great players, right? You think about the players who, the African-American players who were coming into the league and changing the way the NBA was played. Uh, Julius Irving attracting a lot of fans, uh, particularly when he goes to the Philadelphia 76ers. You have other ABA stars, right, when they move over to the NBA doing the same thing. And, and they brought this color, this flash, this flair, um, that even though uh, fans uh, really didn't come <laughs> that much to games, you know, I, I think owners realized in a sense that if the franchise was, was winning, if they had these star players, even if they were African-American, um, that, that that was a good thing. Now, of course, they were interested in having white players, whether they were on the bench uh, certainly if they were uh, stars or marketable stars, as you said. But, you know, I, I think um, if, if the team could gel, um, that, that was, you know. And, and the other thing you have to remember, too, the Washington Bullets were one of the first teams to have a black coach, right? You know, yes. Bill Russell uh, in, in 66 was the first. But then you'll have a couple others after that. And then the Bullets were the first actually to have a tandem, a black coach and an assistant black coach, Bernie Bickerstaff, uh, or at least they were one of the first. Uh, in my research, I think uh, I, I had a difficult time finding uh, uh, an assistant and a head coach who were African-American. You know, and that sort of jived with what Washington was during the 1970s. You know, it acquired the nickname Chocolate City uh, because it was one of the first black, or not, if not one of the first, the first black majority major cities in the United States. Um, and so they were trying to appeal, I think, Poland in some way to attracting African-American fans, although it was difficult, right, building this stadium out uh, on the Beltway um, and, and uh, fans, particularly who were living in the city, had a more difficult time to get there. Uh, than say fans who were living in the suburbs. Yeah, that that and that all makes that all makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean the location is just it's 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 sort of part of this big area, but it's not necessarily part of you, you know doesn't have quite have that community link to it. And and you know the, and as you right. mentioned, the bullets are new too to the area, so it does it generally takes a while for it'd be different if if Washington were a city that didn't have any other pro sports. Uh, you know the the Trailblazers obviously had a lot of success because they were the first pro sports franchise. The, the fans came out you know immediately even when they weren't any good but you know it's, it's different with the uh, bullets and, and as you mentioned yeah. they, Washington had been burned already by pro basketball so you know yeah. definitely a wait and see attitude definitely makes sense in that context yeah yeah well don't forget I mean it's not like Washington had a lot of pro sports teams in the 70s you sure. know the Senators left in the early 70s 71 I believe the Capitals come into the league roughly around the same time the bullets move from DC I think their first season is 74 75 and they were god-awful. I think that first year they won eight games. You know, people were calling them the worst team ever in pro hockey. Um, and, of course, the Redskins were here. And that was the main, you know, um, uh, competition, right, for the Bullets as far as attracting 
uh, the entertainment dollar. Now, in D.C., uh, you know, typically a transient city, uh, people come and go with the government, federal government. Um, there was not a lot of room for loyalty to be built, and especially if you didn't have a successful franchise, that wasn't going to happen. Now, of course, the Redskins was sort of bucking that; they were bucking that trend at the time. So they are sort of an exception to the rule. Um, but in the 70s, particularly the early phase of the 1970s, the only competition the Bullets really had was uh, the Redskins. So looking at the 76 season a little bit, uh, 48 and 34, as you mentioned, they have uh, they're fourth in the league in uh, basketball references, simple rating system. Um, so kind of looking at point differential, they're they're you know about the fourth best team in the league according to that metric. Uh, they uh, they draft Kevin Grevy, who was a good swingman who backed up Chenier for the most part, and then. Stepped up in 78 when Chenier was hurt. Uh, they also trade uh, their point guard, Kevin Porter, who was a y- younger player who had you know stood out pretty well in 75 for the experienced veteran Dave Bing, uh, considered a better shooter and defender. Um, and it was kind of looked at at the time with, by Bob Ferry as like, you know, we, we're not a young team. We need to win now versus waiting somebody to develop. I, could that be considered a mistake? Because Porter certainly was a guy who... Um, it had really gaudy assist totals for throughout the late seventies, kind of forgotten about, but really was, you know, led the league in assists one year, and it has like six or seven games above twenty three assists. One of the highest players when it comes to that, but also bounced around a few years before coming back to the Bullets in nineteen eighty. Um, so, did, in that view, does that seem like a, a a smart move to make, or was it perhaps a mistake? Well. You know, Porter was a good passer. He was a good setup man. Um, you know, he was quick. Uh, I think he was a little lax on defense. He was small. Um, so, you know, bigger guards could take advantage of him in that regard. Uh, but let's not forget, too, bringing Dave Bing in. Dave Bing was a hero to the city, right? You know, he grew up in Washington, D.C., attended Spingarn High School, had an incredibly successful career in college. Syracuse. And then in the pros, you know, he was considered to be one of the top guards. Now, in 76, of course, he was getting a little long in the tooth. So uh, Ferry thought, I think, bringing some experience in here uh, would be a good thing. And as you mentioned, it was important, right? If the Bullets were going to make a run, they were going to do it now. Uh, Hayes wasn't getting any younger. Unseld wasn't getting any younger. Uh, Chenier was still sort of young, but, you know, he was battling injuries. Of course, his back injury will put him out in that championship season. So I think, you know, in hindsight, it was still probably a good move. The the, the move didn't pan out. Uh, Bing uh, had some problems gelling. Uh, he didn't play as well as his reputation would suggest. And, of course, they ended up getting rid of him um, to uh, to much chagrin, I think, from the real faithful Bullet fan. Yeah, and uh, he also dealt with injuries that year. Jimmy Jones, who who had been a standout with the ABA, also dealt with injuries. He was a guard from the bench, so they kind of were hurting in their guard depth. Uh, we're about 500 until January, then they... Um, in March, they went on a winning streak, but faltered down the stretch, uh, finished behind the Cavs. Uh, it was the first time in six years they did not win their division. Um, the Cavs were kind of the surprise of the year, and they, the two teams met in the uh, playoffs. Um, 
Austin Carr, Bingo Smith, uh, Jim Jones, and uh, Nate Thurman, kind of the key standouts for that Cavs uh, team. And uh, from the Cavs' perspective, this was their really one of their greatest playoff successes until the uh, in, until more recent times with LeBron. Um, and the uh, known as the miracle on a Richfield, the Dick Snyder's um, runner toward the end of the game at, at, uh, to win in Game Seven. But this was a, a really tightly um, contested series um, with some uh, really some dramatic game winners, but mostly from the Cavs side. They uh, Bingo Sh- Bingo Smith hit a long shot in uh, uh, in Game Two. Um, in uh, also uh, Jim Clemens hit a putback on an air ball in Game Five. So the the Cavs definitely won this series with the uh, by the skin of their teeth. Where the Bullets uh, they did win a Game Six in overtime and you won more of the other games more comfortably. But obviously um, Cleveland came out on top. Yeah, and that series was it for Casey Jones. You know that was the uh, deciding moment, and Casey Jones, the coach, was let go. Um, and and I got to say that Casey Jones was liked. He was well liked in Washington D.C. Um, and uh, if you go back and read some of the newspaper articles, if you go back and look at some of the comments from players, they thought that Casey Jones probably got a bum deal um, being being let go after that season. <clears throat> but nevertheless, uh, that that was the situation. And uh, Poland is faced now with trying to find a replacement coach, and they find Dick Mata. Yeah, if, who had, of course, uh, coached the uh, Bulls in the early 70s, some really great Bulls teams that were stuck behind the Lakers and Bucks in a really stout Western Conference in the early part of the decade. So, um, But that team had aged, and he, I think um, the team and the players weren't really getting along by 75 or so, so it was time for him to move on and, and time for the team to move on. Uh, he was seen as, you know, a little bit more tough-minded. Um, the Bullets were seen in an, as sort of pampered by the media. However, Bernie Bickerstaff was retained and uh, and, and did stay with the team throughout um, uh, throughout Mata's tenure. But I believe the whole time Mata was there as Coach Bickerstaff was also there. So, um, yeah. so they did maintain that continuity and um, – you know, the, in the 77 season, they have the same record. They are uh, worse in SRS, only a .90, so 10th out of the 22 teams by uh, that metric. One, one of the reasons that Abe Poland, um, I think, um, got rid of Casey Jones and brought in Mata, there was the sense that Casey Jones wasn't um, as as tough on the players, right, that Mata wanted. They right. wanted somebody, I think Mata's word was, uh, excuse me, uh, Abe Poland's word was discipline. And, um, you know, Dick Mata will, of course, bring that to the team. Although it must be said that when he was coaching the Bullets, uh, he will sort of modify his coaching style. He won't be as um, uh, much of a disciplinarian as he had been with Chicago. Um, You know, in Chicago, one of the issues that came up, you know, Mata, I think later in in his uh, tenure there, he was not only the coach, but he was in charge of negotiating players' contracts. And uh, many of the Bulls players did not appreciate that. And, you know, you can see sort of uh, some issues of cropping up, conflicts of interest, this and that. Um, and uh, Chet Walker, you know, was one of the players there. I think in his autobiography he talks about this. So that last season Mata uh, at, at, at Chicago for Mata was not a good season. I think they won, I don't know, 24, 25 games. And uh, this is the man now who is coming to the Bullets. And a lot of the press were surprised, journalists would cite his record at Chicago. They would cite Mata's dissension or the dissension that existed between Mata and some of the players in Chicago. And uh, they questioned Poland's move um, by bringing in Mata. 
Yeah, and um, it, it's interesting because it seems like uh, that the Bullets tenure goes somewhat the same way where, um, you know, they, they obviously they win the championship and they have um, some some pretty strong seasons under Mata. Um, but by the end, it is sort of a situation where there's quite a bit of infighting. Maybe he's worn out his welcome a little bit um, as well. So that it, it does seem like there's a, a similar pattern with the Bullets than there was with the Bulls. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, although he wasn't in charge of negotiating players' contracts, That's but true. still, you know, it was time for him, it was time for him to move on. I think, and of course, he will continue to coach, never really having the kind of success he had with the Bullets. Um, but you know, for after that championship season, they will lose to the Sonics in '79, um, and you know, Hayes and Unseld were. I don't know, maybe in their mid to late, probably early to mid 30s, you know, battling injuries, you know, playing all those games of basketball is tough on the body. And uh, especially the way Unseld would bang, yeah. Hayes would run up and down the court. So it was it was time. Yeah, it, you know, especially yeah, with the accumulation. I mean, Hayes played so many minutes and um, yes. and it was really durable, but played, you know, um, and uh, the the travel and of course the you know yeah. the, the careers didn't generally last as long then as they do now. Yeah. So uh, no, uh, exactly. Hayes, yeah. be, I mean that's one thing. That. Yeah, yeah, that's one thing people don't realize about Elvin Hayes. He was an Iron Man. You know, he was sort of the Lou Gehrig of of, uh, of professional basketball. You know, I don't know what his how I, I you know probably missed a couple games here and there. I mean, he was sort of the ABA Ron Boone, right? This this guy who uh, had this incredible streak of of games not missed. And also, you mentioned travel. You know, let's not forget that teams did not have the kind of pampered service that they have these days with their own chartered airplanes. I mean, the majority of teams, if not all of them, were traveling uh, on uh, commercial jetliners, you know, and trying to adhere to schedules and sitting in those small seats. And, you know, it was it was not luxurious. You know, that final series between the Sonics and the Bullets in 78, you know, flying back and forth in and in 79, flying back and forth from coast to coast would really take the toll on on bodies, right, going from one time zone to another. So that's something that I think people overlook as well. Absolutely. By the way, the uh, the career low for uh, Elvin Hayes' number of games played in a season is 80. Yeah, well, the, there you go. <laughs> the 76 <laughs> season he played, he missed two games that year. Every other year he either played 82 or 81. So that's... Uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and then in addition, all those playoff games and exhibition games, you yes. know, so um, and maybe that's why he didn't play much in the offseason. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I, yeah, he was pretty tired. I have to cut him a little bit of slack there. So, yeah, no, of course. Of yeah. Course. The uh, so the '77 season, uh, a couple of trades. Uh, Nick Weatherspoon's traded to the Sonics for Leonard Gray. Weatherspoon was sort of uh, was considered really talented, but a little bit, um, you know, mercurial. I guess uh, had a little bit of you know just um, would would be more inconsistent. Like he'd play really well for stretches and then would disappear for other stretches. Um, Truck Robinson also traded to the uh, Hawks for Tom Henderson and a draft pick. Uh, Truck Robinson, very good, who very good player who would play well for the hawks and the uh, jazz but was about to be a free agent and was it going to be difficult for the um the bolts to afford him especially with the other you know big men they that you know obviously hayes and until we're going to be playing uh but henderson was a good contributor a, a tough guard who could penetrate the defense and you know was helpful in the championship year yeah no he was you know he was sort of the uh the point guard that kevin porter never turned out to be right mm-hmm. you know um solid steady uh, didn't make uh, many mistakes. Not that Porter did, but Porter was just too 
too much, I think, for the Bullets. Um, played good defense, you know, and, and Henderson had been through the wars, right? You know, he was the point guard on that 72 team that played the Soviet Union in the uh, gold medal uh, round uh, in the finals, and they ended up losing that controversial game. So, you know, he knew what it was like to play, and he came in and provided a kind of calming, steady influence uh, to the team. So he was certainly a, an important pickup. So the, uh, the the Bullets win a three-game series against the uh, Cavs. I believe this is the first year for the, uh, the, the, the mini-series, or uh, it's the first one the Bullets are involved in. The playoffs expanded to 12 teams this year. Um, and then they play the uh, Rockets in the Eastern Conference semifinals. The Rockets had won the division that year. It stood out. This was Moses Malone's first year in the NBA. Also on the team, Rui Tamjanovic, Calvin Murphy, uh, Mike Newlin. Um, Mitch Kupchak played very well in this uh, series. He was a he, he had been drafted um, this year, so he was a rookie along with Larry Wright. He had 32 points in Game 1. In Game 3, he drew a key foul on Moses Malone for two free throws and then drew a charge on Mike Newlin to uh, seal that game. But the... Um, uh, the Rockets do win the series. Moses Malone has 31 points, 26 rebounds, including 15 offensive rebounds in Game 2. Calvin Murphy is uh, big down the stretch in Game 5. And in Game 6, Houston just spreads the floor and hits a lot of open jumpers when the uh, Bullets have a difficult time covering. And Alvin Hayes' quote afterward is, if a team, if a team is going to beat you like that, they're supposed to win, and there's nothing you can do about it. So... Um, a, uh, a, a you know, I, I would say the the Bulls had a slightly, or excuse me, the Rockets had a better record, so not really an upset, but another you know probably disappointing result for the uh, Bullets, another you know early round playoff exit, um, you know, and, and already a little bit of turmoil within the team with Dave being openly being critical of Dick Mata and Elvin Hayes, as you alluded to earlier, saying that he's tired of the criticism he's been receiving and and uh, openly speaking about maybe the fact that he should go elsewhere. Attendance also. Uh, uh, struggling uh, during this time. Yeah, well, that was a season that was not to be remembered. Uh, and don't you bet people, uh, journalists included, were talking about the regular season record identical to what Casey Jones had put up the same year before. So bringing in Mata, you know, this was this was a tough time uh, for the Bullets and, uh, you know, uh, didn't really bode well for the following season, right, in 77, 78. And, and Mata in that uh, the training camp the following season in 77, you know, he sort of laid down the law. Um, he came out and, and let people know uh, that uh, they would be held accountable. Uh, but they got off to a slow start, I think, during that season, especially the regular season. Um, uh, the first five or ten games, I don't know exactly what the record was, but they had a hard time uh, playing. So. Yeah, and they hovered around 500 for most of the season. They finished 44 and 38 um, with a point zero, or excuse me, a point eight two SRS, seventh in the league. Um, and yeah, a lot of one of the things was just they they dealt with a lot of health issues. Um, a lot of times they'd only yes. have you know seven healthy players. You know, Shanier suffers a back injury and is unable to play during the team's uh, playoff run, and they just uh, struggle to really keep every everyone healthy. They uh, they do add Bobby Dandridge to free agency, as we mentioned um, before. Uh, really, you know, key guy who can uh, you know d- defend Julius Irving and other wings, and a very good offensive player who had uh, won a 
a championship with the Bucks in 71. Uh, they also drafted Greg Ballard, um, who has a, a pretty key role on this team as well. And also they add Charles Johnson in the midseason uh, from the uh, Warriors and who was able to um, help bring some uh, scoring punch and, um, you know, and really um, led the team. The, the team definitely gelled at the right point and was playing its best ball you know, heading into the playoffs. Yeah, uh, that's right. There's another issue is that, you know, attendance continues to go down despite having the success, despite having the new arena. There are some fans who are upset about uh, attempts to black out or tape delay games, which, uh, you know, on one hand, it's understandable they want people to come to the games. On the other hand, you know, being able to follow the team closely on television, you know, theoretically helps, uh, you know, attract fans to the team and, you know, delivers a product that they want to then see in person. So, um uh, but um, the, the, of course, you know, with this playoff success, finally, um, the you know the bullets are able to capture the imagination of the city at least for a, a short time. Yeah, well, you're speaking of the championship season, right? The yes. Seventy-seven, seventy-eight. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, toward the. I mean, first of all, the bullets sort of squeaked into the playoffs. Yeah. Right? You know, there there was a a dicey couple of weeks there at the end of the season. They didn't know if they were even qualify. They finished forty four and thirty eight. Um, and I don't, I haven't really gone back to look at the records, but I would hazard to guess that as far as the team winning a championship, they were probably one of of uh, the teams with the most losses during the regular season. Um, but um, yeah, you know, and this is one of the things that I I write about in my uh, article, my chapter of that DC sports, the nation's capital, at play that DC, um, the nation's capital, uh, throughout the 70s had been bashed. Right, the image. Uh, it was a city. Some people would call it the murder capital of the country. Uh, they would cite the uh, crime rates. They would cite theft. They would cite the high levels of vice. Um, and that's just in the city itself. Um, there was there was urban flight. Just not whites, but African Americans were also leaving uh, the city. Uh, in 1976, there was a uh, bombing of uh, diplomats in DuPont Circle, and then in 1977, uh, a group of um, Hanafi Muslims um, momentarily took over a government building and the B'nai B'rith building in downtown D.C. Marion Barry was shot during this. He was a council member during this. And that was a, um, a the the leader of that had been a, once been a spiritual mentor right. of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as well. Right, exactly. Yes. Yeah, so the ties to basketball there. So, yeah. you know, on one level, you know, D.C., its image was getting battered. And I haven't even mentioned the fact that as a nation's capital, this was the place of protest, right? So you had protesters, the anti-war protesters, Watergate, of course, occurred in 73-74. The economy was not doing so well. Uh, The energy crisis was going on. You know, you had Gerald Ford in 1975, I believe, uh, in his State of the Union address saying the State of the Union is not good. Uh, So all of these things that just build up, build up, build up. And the bullets come along in 77, 78. D.C. had really not had a championship team, although you could argue that there was a, a team called the uh, Washington Bears, uh, an all-black team, that won um, the kind of unofficial title, professional title, in 1943, 40, somewhere in the 40s. But D.C. had not had a, a title winner since 1936. So there was a great hunger, right? Uh, you know, you needed to have this feel 
feel-good story uh, taking place in D.C. People were hungry for it in many ways, and uh, this team just sort of gelled, right, particularly in the latter part of the season. You mentioned their injuries. They got over that. Uh, Kevin Grevy really hit uh, his stride in the latter half of that season. Um, you know, I think part of it was the confidence he gained and, and also knowing that Phil Chenier probably would not uh, be returning because of his back injury. Um, the Bulls just really started playing well, defeating the Hawks, which was a tough series in that first round, and then going on to beat Spurs. And then really what gave them a lot of confidence was defeating the Philadelphia 76ers, who was sort of the, the um, self-proclaimed, I would say, um, um, winner before the start of the season. People predicted that the Sixers would certainly be there at the end, but they had their own issues, right? I think they didn't have enough uh, basketballs for the team, you know, with McGinnis and Julius Irving and uh, Lloyd B. Free, uh, and then Daryl Dawkins was on that team. Sure, Doug Collins, yeah. Uh, yeah, and Doug Collins. Uh, so, um, so this team, right, this team meant the world, I think, to the city. And when they won that championship, uh, the city went crazy. You know, they had a massive celebration. Um, and one of the things I discuss in my book, you know, I forgot to mention that uh, Dick Mata muttered the phrase, the opera ain't over until the fat lady sings. Yes. Uh, he had muttered that in this sort of off-the-cuff remark. Uh, interestingly enough, I believe he had said it in the San Antonio series, um, you know, the phrase he claims that he got that phrase from a sports announcer, <clears throat> Dan Cook, uh, in San Antonio, who he's watching a sports cast uh, one evening while the Bullets were waiting for a game to be played, and he just sort of modded. Uh, reiterated it in the locker room, but really no journalist picked it up. It wasn't until the 76ers series that he started using this phrase, and it just became, you know, uh, all the rage in Washington, D.C. You know, uh, if you go back and try and trace the origins of this phrase, there are various um, uh, iterations of it throughout history. Um, but uh, it's, it's after this that it just really becomes popular, right? And Washingtonians will show up to games dressed up in opera gear, you know. Uh, one man, uh, one of the articles I read about the games, would show up in hubcaps, you know, across his chest with these Viking helmets and, and portraying himself as the fat lady. When the bullets returned from Seattle, you know, they had more, more than eight or 9,000 people waiting for them at Dulles Airport, and of course this gentleman showed up. Uh, this was really sort of the great classical music moment for Washington, D.C. You know, after the Bullets won the series, fans went out on the street in Georgetown on M Street, and popular radio stations were playing Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries and the aria from Aida. You know, I mean, it was, it was, it was really something extraordinary. Yeah, I mean the, the phenomenon. It, it, yeah, it's pretty um, unique. It, it's just it's weird to you know for that phrase. Of course, you know, my my entire lifetime has been in you know um, ha- has been just a phrase that everyone says. And you know yeah. the the fact that it uh, you know while it may have been said before this, you know, the fact that it entered you know popular culture and is you know became a thing that almost everybody knows uh, is is interesting. Um, So looking quickly at, uh, you know, their playoff runs heading into the finals that year, 
Um, they, they swept the Hawks, who had John Drew and Steve Hawes as their key players. Uh, Bobby Dandridge injured his neck during that uh, series and was sidelined for a while in the Spurs series. Uh, the Spurs win game one. The Bullets uh, play some undisciplined offense, which angers Mata. Uh, Gervin has uh, 46 points in uh, game two. Um, I believe Dandridge is still out, or if not, at least hobbled at that point. But the Bolts do hold on after the Spurs rally down the stretch. Um, and then Dandridge really uh, comes through in Game 4 as the uh, Bullets win nearly 98-95. to um, And then in Game 6, uh, it's another close game where the lights actually go out for eight minutes in the third quarter as the Spurs are making a run. Then when they come back, um, Elvin Hayes and Larry Wright are able to to uh, spark the uh, Bullets to a victory. Definitely the Bullets show kind of more discipline they're they're more of a patterned offense where the spurs are more of a you know freelance uh open wild game um under doug moe with uh you know gervin and larry keenan um that being you know their their bread and butter and the bullets are able to um pull it out against the uh, favored uh, spurs who were 52 and 30 that year so so quite a bit better during the regular season yeah no i mean that's exactly right and you know, I, I guess you could call this championship uh, season for the Bullets the fortuitous season, you know, mentioning the lights going out during the Spurs series, and they gave the Bullets a break, and they regathered, regrouped, and went on, of course, to win that series. And so the same thing sort of happened during the final series with uh, the Supersonics. Um, there was an issue with um, uh, uh, the, uh, there was an RV show, taking place in Seattle uh, that uh, the ownership, the Seattle Supersonics ownership, um, didn't foresee, I think, the club. The club that, that Seattle team that year, by the way, was almost the, the, the same kind of experience. You know, they came from um, no one really expected them to reach the finals that year, um, and they ended up uh, sort of eking their way in, and then, of course, they got on a run, much like the Bullets did, and found themselves in the finals. But the, the Kingdome, uh, or was it uh, one of the arenas where the, the Seattle club was to play, there was an RV show scheduled during the finals week, and, and the RV show could not be moved. Uh, one, one person, one journalist uh, sort of uh, said that this was uh, the first time an RV show, you know, couldn't be moved. They called it the immobile mobile home show, I think, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it threw, it threw that final series schedule off, right? And, yeah. and the, N- the NBA officials came up with a, a, a really, I guess you could say almost fortuitous for the Bullets. I think the first game was played in Seattle, and then the fourth game was played in Seattle, and and then the fifth, and if there was a game seven, that would, too, be played in Seattle. Um, so uh, it seemed that this just, things were falling into place for the Bullets. And then when they moved those games to the King Dome, right, this huge, massive dome, the uh, Sonics weren't used to playing in that arena. They had never played in that arena, I think, before. And if you've ever tried to shoot a basketball in a big dome stadium like that with no background, it's very, very difficult. And um, this was a kind of leveling influence, right? Uh, and the Bullets ended up doing quite well in the King Dome compared to the Sonics. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. Um, the the format was actually it was a um, yeah it was the first game was Seattle, then two in Washington, two in right. Seattle, then one in Washington, and one in Seattle, and and game. Game six, which was really the only, uh, all of them were very were, were pretty close except for Game six, which the Bullets won one seventeen to eighty two, and yeah. um, 
you know, and they were down 3-2, so they won game six uh, on the road and then were able to, uh, or at home, excuse me, and then able to come back in game seven on the road in Seattle. They were the last yeah. team until yeah. the um, until the Cavs this year to win game seven on the road in the uh, finals. You know, and in fact, of course, you know, when they won game two, they lost game one um, in Seattle, but when they won game two, that was the uh, first uh Bullets uh, finals uh, win yeah. in ten tries in in a game. Yeah, so, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They, they 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 broke through, right? Exactly. <laughs> and, yeah, know, and, uh, yeah. The, the seventy five series had had a weird format as well. Um, there was another scheduling conference in San Francisco, so that actually sort of worked against the Bullets. So they, uh, but yeah. this in, the, in this case, it worked in their um, favor. Um, yeah, before Game Seven, um, it, you, there's a story on I think on a Washington Post. Um, uh, article about uh, looking at the 30th anniversary of the team where um, Hazen Unseld, you know, called a team meeting and they, you know, were both at that point 32 and the locker room, seven of the other 10 players are 25 or younger. And they said, we don't have four or five more years. We have to do this now. Uh, Hayes said, I think the guys looked in their hearts and said, let's do it. So had, had sort of the inspirational, um, um, speech before the game and uh really a balanced effort for the um bullets net series unsettled 15 and 9 hayes dandridge henderson johnson and cupjack all were in double figures where the sonic scars really struggled dennis johnson went over 14 gus williams was four for 12 their big men played pretty well uh, sigma had 21 and 11 and marvin webster had 27 and 19 but the um Bullets able to win it 105-99. Um, it got got really close toward the end. Paul Silas had a tip in to cut it to two, but then uh, Unseld was able to hit two free throws, and uh, and then Washington able to win it at the end. Yeah, and if if I'm not mistaken, I think this was the year of two for three, right? Yes, you know? right. And, yeah, and I think he missed the first one. Unseld missed the first one. Right. Yes. <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, Unseld wasn't that great of a foul shooter, but you know, you gotta you gotta. Uh, you know, give it to him because he uh, he he ended up making the big foul shots when it came uh, under pressure, and then you know the last basket by Bobby Dandridge was just sort of icing on the cake. Um, but that was a huge win, obviously, yeah. <laughs> for, yes. Yes. for for the city. When they were in the locker room, there was uh, no champagne there, so they um, so they had some beer and some and some soda yep. before they uh, went back to the hotel. They they stopped the bus at a liquor store, and then they. Um, um, a bunch of the team had a Pollen's credit card, and they uh, and, and they were able to get their champagne uh, to uh, yeah. to celebrate. Yeah. So yeah. that's a yeah. Kevin Kevin Grevy told me, um, you know, it was just a constant party, you know, from from that moment forward. You know, Kevin Grevy and Mitch Kupchak were younger guys, of course, and uh, either they were rooming uh, in D.C. together or they were living close to one another. But Kevin said that from that moment, he didn't get any sleep. You know, even after the plane arrived in Dulles, uh, there was, you know, this huge celebration. Uh, and then, of course, there was the victory parade uh, the next day down Pennsylvania Avenue, and they stopped in at the White House, and then they went to Congress on the steps of Congress. Official proclamations were made. You know, there was a sign that said, I think, on Pennsylvania Avenue, uh, referring to the Federal Trade Commission, FTC hails bullets monopoly. You know, I mean, <laughs> It was just really sort of, uh, 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 just like I said, extraordinary events. And it was, you know, you can see it. it, it and, and one thing I, in my research I was able to turn up, that this was a unifying moment 
for the city. You know, uh, the players will admit this. The um, officials with the team will admit this. Uh, the mayor, uh, Walter Washington, I believe was his name, will will admit to this. You know, it was just a time where this, this city, right, that was sort of tearing itself apart, this city that had a, 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 a bruised eye and had been uh, battered in the press, um, this city that had a racial divide uh, was un- unified, at least temporarily, by this team. Yeah, and um, they uh, the team also took a trip to Israel during the offseason. I guess there was a documentary made about it? Uh, that's interesting. I don't know about that. Um, I, I'm not sure. Uh, okay. Could, could have been. Yeah, yeah. I, the, I didn't have a chance to look up and see if there's uh, if that was actually made or uh, what have you, but I think it's from that same Washington Post article where yeah. that was mentioned. And that that was sort of a, you know, a, a attempt to, of course, just to take the trip and also attempt to sort of have the team bond a little bit during the uh, off season. But in that tour, they played in Israel um, and uh, I think they lost. You might want to check that. Yeah, I, th- I think they did sort of a, it was more of a, uh, they were not playing at their hardest at that no, point. No, of course. Yeah, and, of course. Um, but, yeah. But, but this, you know, this is, uh, this is before the kind of globalization of basketball, right? Right. And to have an Israeli team or an all-star team beat the NBA champions, uh, what, whatever excuse they might have given just did not look good. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. So looking a little bit at um, the 79 season, there's a little bit of bad feelings with um, uh, Bobby Dandridge wanting to uh, renegotiate his contract. Uh, Dick Mata also having some contract issues with the uh, team. Uh, the team is, is um, and of course, as we mentioned, the top players are aging a bit and the team doesn't necessarily uh, practice as much because of that. Maybe maybe sort of a accommodation that you mentioned that Mata um, d- did for the team to, um, you know, to not be quite as stern of a taskmaster. Um, the Bolts are a, a, quite a bit a better regular season team. They win 54 games and are second in the league in uh, SRS, but they do definitely... Um, they have a tough run in the uh, playoffs. They the Hawks take them to uh, seven games after they had a three-one league. This is uh, Dan Roundfield, John Drew, and, and Tree Rollins with Hubie Brown as coach. And um, after yeah, and that and and playing the Hawks, right? They did it the year before. They they won two. Yeah, uh, but this is a longer series. But playing the Hawks, that was grueling series. The Hawks were tough. They played good defense. They they were physical. Uh, you know, you go back and read the press accounts and the players' views on the Hawks. You know, they almost to the letter will say that playing them, uh, playing the Hawks was was a tough matchup. So you know, even though you know, in addition to it being stretched to seven games, they were playing the Hawks. Right. So that was that was uh, even more taxing on their uh, health and uh, stamina. Yeah, the the Hawks like to they they were pretty fast paced. And, um, you know, Hugh Brown, obviously uh, a great coach who, you know, preached yeah. tough, aggressive defense. Uh, the Bolts able to pull it off in game seven at home. Uh, President Carter is in attendance um, and Hayes and Dandridge are able to uh, lead the team to that win. And then a rematch against the Spurs again. Uh, the um, the Spurs a little bit down in the regular season, but basically have the uh, same cast of characters. And uh, they are able to take a 3-1 lead. Um 
Uh, Unseld has 26 points and 22 rebounds for the Bullets' only win in the first four games in Game 2. Um, Gervin has 42 points, including 20 in the third quarter for the uh, Game 4 win. Uh, the Bullets almost pulled off Game 2, but Charles Johnson had a his game-winner fell out of the... Uh, uh, went in and out in Game 3. So it appears as though the uh, Spurs are going to win this series, but as we know, 3-1 leads are not always... Uh, aren't always insurmountable and the bolts were able to squeeze out really close victories in the final three games to um to to take the series and go back to the uh finals really uh uh, a tough series for them, kind of the peak of the uh, of the Gervin era Spurs before the you know they move to the Western Conference and the Lakers begin to you know be the dominant team in the Western Conference. So kind of a a last chance for them before uh, before that happens, and the Bullets are able to uh, go back to the finals with a for a rematch with the Sonics. And uh, Dandridge uh, has a game winner in a Game Seven, fifteen foot jumper that um, one of five Game Seven game winners in NBA history with ten or less seconds uh, left and then after that Elvin Hayes was able to block a James Silas jumper and then Dandridge stripped a Keenan who got the ball after that to uh, absolutely seal that win so uh, great effort from Dandridge to uh, pull that off and a really great effort for from the uh, Bullets to uh, kind of their last uh, you know inspirational um, uh, comeback after you know so many comebacks that they had come been through in the uh, late 70s the the last one of course before they uh, meet the uh, Sonics again in the finals. Yeah, well, you know, I think it was time. Uh, the Sonics were really playing well at that point, and, you know, as we discussed, the Bullets were just sort of, at that point, running on fumes in many ways. Uh, they had been through some tough, tough series, and it's emotional, right? It's emotionally taxing as well, um, and the Sonics were hungry, right? They wanted revenge from the year before, and uh, basketball was booming in Seattle, um, the Seattle supporters, I've read accounts, just, you know, if you thought the, the Washington victory in 78 prompted this huge outpouring of, of people uh, when the Seattle team wins that series in 79, they will come home and have victory parades twice the size of what happened in D.C. So, uh, they, you know, they, they, they wanted to avenge that loss. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, and uh, the Bullets were able to win game one. Um... Larry Wright was given two free throws with no time left on the clock and and, and hit both to uh, win the game. But yeah, it was pretty much the the, the, the Sonics from um, from then on. Uh, they won one game, two and three fairly handily. Uh, the Bullets did give them a um, you know a, a, a tough um, a tough time in Game Four. Uh, Mata had tried moving Dandridge to. Um, uh, to, to the backcourt, but he Dandridge just wasn't really happy with uh, that situation. A lot of fouls in that game, and Hayes, Dandridge, and Unsett all fouled out of the game, and then uh, uh, Jack Sigma finally, he was able to hit some free throws to seal the uh, Sonics win, and then uh, and then game five, the Bulls did pull off an, a tough fight again, but the uh, Sonics were able to um, uh, pull it out with uh, with Freddie Brown uh, hitting um, four out of five shots in the final uh, 13 minutes in the uh, and the Sonics clinching their one and only uh, championship um, to and, and from that point really ending the um, you know the the, the the team came back in uh, in a certain form in 1980 but definitely by then um, the combination of the aging and the combination of the um, fraying of relationships a little bit uh, kind of kept them from um, 
you know, really um, being able to accomplish much again. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, and, and with that, right, I mean, it's sort of, you look at how uh, the decade began and how it ended, it was sort of apropos. <laughs> but but during that span of, of the decade, you know, the Bullets had, the franchise had four final series appearances. Uh, I mentioned that they probably played in the most playoff games uh, of of any franchise. You might want to check that, but I bet that's pretty close to being the top. So um, yeah, it, it was really a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, decade for the Bullets. Yeah, a- absolutely, and they're really, um, you know, there, there's there's been some good stuff written about them, but it, they're definitely a team that is underexplored. I think um, for you know the significance that they had you know, in terms of on court and, you know, how they really reflect a lot of things that were going on in the decade, particularly the, the latter half of the decade. I think that's the, you know, kind of the prime run for them, obviously, you know, three finals from 75 to uh, 79, definitely kind of the, uh, the, the peak of them as far as being, you know, a, uh, the top tier team coming out of the East. Yeah, that's right. This was an incredible team uh, that hit their stride at the right moment and uh unified and brought the city together yeah um yeah and, and you know just a really um you know really interesting team that's definitely worth exploring and you know really accomplished quite a bit and um you know really the 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 peak for the franchise in terms of uh of success and you know as you mentioned for a brief time were you know uh, helped unify the city and um you you know had brought a big celebration unfortunately it couldn't have been a more um lasting thing in terms terms of the you know either the success of the team or just you know the the uh, unfortunately they were there wasn't really anything done with the franchise to kind of celebrate the uh, the, the 20th and 30th anniversaries of the um of the title finally the 35th anniversary um there was a um there was a formal recognition of the uh, team and and their accomplishments and i'm sure the wizards will kind of continue to um to do that but it's uh you, you know there's definitely more worth exploring and i appreciate you being on the show to uh to talk about them with me yeah no problem and uh, i enjoyed it um thanks a lot and take a, you know if you get a chance take a look at the piece i wrote uh, for that book because you know, one of the, I teach sport history. One of the topics I teach is sport history at George Mason University, and I try to tell my students in any of these sports history classes that using sports as a lens to talk about larger issues. And um, you know, this is one of the things that I tried to do with this Bullets team: um, the fact that it was a kind of uh, unifier, the fact that it crossed racial divides at a time when the city needed that. Um, the fact that uh, it, it was just a kind of feel-good story, right, at a time when when things were going poorly in the city. Um, and you can see this in the comments of the press and, and many officials. And, of course, I talk about the season and I give some background to the players and, and Dick Mata and, and his history and, and so forth. So uh, uh, I think, you you know, given your interest in basketball and your knowledge, um, I think you might find it uh, interesting to read. Cool. I will definitely check it out. And for listeners, that uh, the, the the book is called DC Sports: The Nation's Capital at Play, and um, and Chris has a a chapter in that book. There's a lot of, a lot of interesting topics uh, in there as well. So definitely uh, something might be worth for if you're interested in sports history. And if you're listening to this, you probably are. Then definitely looks like something that's. Uh, 
uh, definitely something that's worth checking out. So I should also mention that a lot of the research that I did uh, came from the book The Bullets, The Wizards, Washington, D.C. Basketball by Brett Abrams and uh, Raphael Mazzoni. So uh, that's uh, worth checking out if you are a Bullets Wizards fan. There's a lot of great history in there. And uh, so thanks, everyone, for checking us out. You can uh, find us at the step back at fansided.com. You can also uh, find us on Twitter and Facebook at Over and Back NBA. And if you like what we're doing, please leave a rating and review, five stars preferably, on iTunes. And you can also find us on Stitcher or Listen to your podcast. We'll be back again soon. Thanks. Thank you.